When looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Well, excuse me! Looking for good ideas for life? You're far from good hands. Hey, bud, what's your problem? If you think the listener is always right, you're far from the right place. Out of order! Even in the future, nothing works! Hosted by a Northeasterner by birth, but a rebel by choice. Are you threatening me? If you want a host that floats between love and madness, and we know the night is always gonna be here anyway. Thinking of you's working up my appetite, looking forward to a little afternoon delight. Then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. All right, guys, uh, listen to the blues riff and B. Watch me for the changes and try and keep up, okay? Warning, creators of this game do understand the subject matter may be offensive to some, but they do honor the families and people that have been affected by these real-life tragedies that these individuals have caused. Wanna play a game? Oh yeah! Lover of true crime? Yes, yes, yes. Well, we got an interesting game for you to check out. Wow. With the mashup of influences such as horror movies, collecting cards, and RPGs. What? Led to giving birth to an incredible creation of this game. Killers, the card game. You are all my children now. This game is a collectible trading card game featuring some of the most infamous killers with tidbits of trivia on the back of each card to help you learn some insight to each criminal. Who the hell are you? Let's not forget, during the game, cops will be chasing you and these criminals. I'm a cop, you idiot! However, check out their website listed through all social media today, which can be found under Killers, the card game. Am I on the internet? I want to play a game. Hey folks, it's your least favorite host in the podcast world, Croc, Jonathan Steele. Boy, do we have a good one for you today. Hey, I'm uh, Michael Hawley, and uh, make sure you watch and listen to Crazy Train Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, between April of 1888, and I'm not talking about the 
new Paramount se- series, or is that 1883? Yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> but between April of 1888 and February of 1891, there was a little thing going on in London, England, called the Whitechapel Murders, thanks to an unidentified serial killer at the in and around the Whitechapel district of London, which is with the killer being called things such as Whitechapel murderer and leather apron. And the victims were usually women working as prostitutes who lived and worked in the slums of the East End of London. For some reason, I can't talk tonight. <laughs> However, after a famous Dear Boss letter that came in, the killer became known as Jack the Ripper. So why don't we go ahead and welcome expert author and all-around badass, Michael <laughs> L. Hawley. Michael, how are you? Great. How are you doing? Good. Uh, the reason I said all-around badass was because last week we taped a martial arts panel. I am still working on playing catch-up with editing and stuff. And just to give a little background on Michael, he let's see, has a master's degree in science at, with the study of pentatology, excuse me, like I said. Yeah. Fossil stratigraphy, yes. <laughs> yes, uh, he also has secondary science education at State University of New York. He has bachelor's degree in genealogy from Michigan State University. He is a badass because, but that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> Thanks to black belts in Aikido and Judo. Yes. And he teaches, by the way. Oh, and I do, it's appropriate, and I didn't notice the last time we chatted, last week when we did that taping, was that you are a retired commander in Navy pilot. So yes. I hope you had a good 4th of July, and thank you for your service, sir. Well, thank you very much. So I guess since we're talking about that before we get to Jack the Ripper and all that fun stuff, what made you decide to go for the Navy and be a pilot and such? Well, uh, it was all about Star Wars when I was in uh, eighth grade, because what I wanted to do is I wanted to be an astronaut. And I knew that uh, at the time, most astronauts were military pilots. So what I did was I became a military pilot and I flew both fixed wing and helicopter. And uh, I actually enjoyed the helicopters more just to, to hover is divine. But what happened was, is while I, I got accepted in the Space Systems Operations Program, which is kind of the military side of, of NASA, but I turned it down because I was bothered by the space shuttle. The space shuttle is only des- was only designed to go to the space station. And when uh, Werner von Braun, he made that Saturn V rocket, he really made that thing to go to Mars. And so I was excited about possibly being one of those astronauts to go to Mars. But what I realized was all I would be doing would be shuttling to a space station, be at the space station. So I shifted gears. And then uh, so I decided to, uh, you know, switch, uh, switch my career. But I still decided to stay in, uh, um, in, and get a retire. So and, and luckily I retired as a commander. So that was nice. Absolutely. And what years were your service? Because that leads to what I'm going to ask next. I, I joined, uh, or let's see, I was, I went to uh, aviation officer's Canada school, which is um, 
uh, let's see, 18, uh, 1986. I always say 18 because I'm researching Jack the Ripper, but 1986 to uh, 19 or 2009 is when I retired. Okay. So, yeah, because you mentioned about Mars and all that stuff with space flight and such, it's amazing that I guess we're just, was it maybe the last five, six years, started exploring heading out to Mars. Obviously, they haven't spent they haven't sent people yet, I don't think, but they sent and had the images sent back and all that fun right. stuff. So, right. Yeah. The great thing about NASA is they decided to get business involved. And that's where Elon Musk got involved with SpaceX. And he is just kicking butt. So he is uh, here. It is after the space shuttle retired, we were renting from Russia to get our astronauts to the space station uh, in, in their uh, rockets. So, but now we get to use SpaceX's Falcon 9 rocket to get there. And so now he's making a starship, which can, can seat at least a hundred astronauts if they, if he had to. And it's kind of in the, the beginning stages. So this summer, we're gonna start to see uh, it shoot off and it's all hundred percent reusable. That's the amazing thing. So his, uh, you know, his system of creating this thing is he blows things up. So, which is pretty exciting, but this guy is doing it. It's really amazing. Yeah. I obviously heard about SpaceX on the news and such, but I don't know can really in depth about the program, mm. but, and one more thing military wise here, cause you said you did both helicopters and planes and such. So which, you said you preferred the helicopters, but what's the biggest uh, difference between? Uh, at altitude, it's the same. And when you're flying straight, you have to, you know, you just have to control your airspeed while you're in, you know, with the power and you're just flying. And, you know, with the cyclic stick or the, the stick, you go left, right, same idea. But when uh, with the airplanes, you have to, you know, land on a runway. And um, with a helicopter, you want to still land with you know, with the wind to the nose because uh, if you don't, if that wind comes from the tail rotor, it could cause us uh, some problems, serious problems. So, but we you could land if you had a dual engine failure or a, you know engine failure in an airplane, you got to find a runway or uh, some area. The problem with roads is that there's always power lines. So, uh, but with a helicopter. All you need to know is where the winds are. You can land it in one spot and you can auto rotate and land it so softly. You don't even feel yourself land, even without any engine, any power. So uh, it's in a way it's safer. The problem with helicopters, though, is it has a lot more moving parts. So the chances for some catastrophe in, at, al at, al at altitude would be is a little uh, increased. But we had this thing at the top of our rotor called the Jesus nut because it had a cotter key and all that nut just, you know, it was the H2 that I flew. Uh, and if that popped off, it would have been a catastrophic failure. <laughs> so, but uh, just one little nut. So yeah, it's amazing. It's the littlest things that make shit work. That's for sure. <laughs> so obviously I know you teach now as a secondary career, so what do you focus on a teaching? Because obviously we're get, going to be getting into Jack the Ripper here. And however, with writing and everything else and the homework I've done, you have a love of research and passion for storytelling. So oh, yeah. how, how do you incorporate that, that love of research and the passion to tell the stories into not only teaching, but 
what you've done with the books for Chat the Ripper so far? Well, what's interesting is uh, because of the, the books that I've published and what's the response that the I've asked been asked to give lectures in Liverpool. I was flown to Dublin for three for a three hour interview. That was pretty nice. So I'm getting a lot of attention doing this. And what happened was uh, I remember doing a lecture and one of the people in the crowd said that was the best lecture that they had ever heard. Not that I'm great, but what happened was, is I teach high schoolers science. And so I said, do you realize that I do this five times a day, five times a week? So this is my job to speak in front of people and try to speak in front of teenagers and many that don't want to learn. You have to hook them. And uh, so there's a lot of different ways to do that. And that really has actually helped my, not only my uh, lecturing, but also my writing because even, uh, so I have, I'm finishing my eighth book. So I, I do both fiction and nonfiction. So the nonfiction is what's gotten a lot of the attention, but my fiction novels, my plan was every chapter, try to hook every page, have a hook. And uh, so that is kind of the, the idea. And just like when I'm teaching with the students is to try to hook them. So with, and that might in, include levity or it's just something interesting, but uh, I think there's a really good connection. It really has helped out both ways. Now, obviously we're going to get into some nuts and bolts of this whole case from the research I've done. And obviously there's been a lot of research done and, and you mentioned the attention you've gotten. And I was actually had an op- I actually had an opportunity to watch the history greatest mysteries. Oh yeah. And you made an appearance in that. So yes. How did that come about? Who reached out and all that fun stuff to do that episode? Well, that happened. Uh, they wanted to contact some people and they were, were looking for experts that were, in the United States. They did contact a couple of people from London and I'm just, I was just one of the people that have um, that people mentioned. So like in London, they said, well, you gotta talk to Holly. So when I, and I was available and I enjoy that. So it was not on the suspect that I research uh, Francis Tumblety Mm -hmm. and they just needed an expert. And if you had watched it, uh, there were five experts I was actually the only one that had written a nonfiction book on Jack the Ripper, but the, I was on a little less. And one of the reasons is because the two hours that I was in front of the green screen with the director, he was asking me to say certain things. And so I would stop him and say, well, you do realize that's factually incorrect. You want me to say something that's factually incorrect. And so he'd say, what, what do you mean? So like he had probably researched as fast as he could, maybe Wikipedia or whatever he did. And I said, well, it was not Chief Inspector Swanson that did what you were asking me to say he did. It was, it was First Class Inspector Aberlines as an example. So I was actually helping him out with uh, that so um so it, it was very helpful to him but it was fun to to talk about it and help him out but then uh, but the, the other people they just read from a script okay so i was act- that brings up a good point wikipedia and things like that because i was actually talking to our mutual buddy uh, brian young who's a historian and does a lot of he does his own show and he does guest appearances on others like ours with the history and 
his show is both U.S. and European history and all that fun stuff. So perfect fit to study Jack the Ripper and such. So we, we were talking about, you know, just different things that are out there on the Internet and things like that. And I'm a bit of a historian as well, not as <laughs> popular, let's just say, but with the internet, Wikipedia and different things, there's a lot of misinformation out there on this case and other cases and just Huge. historical historical facts. So what would you say the biggest misconception would be with this particular case? This particular case, well, there, it just depends on what angle you're looking at. There's so much to it. There are actually some very good researchers and some of the excellent books and uh, amongst the experts, there are a couple a periodical called the Ripperologist that uh, we write articles to. And it, there's a slight peer review going on there because uh, they, when you get it accepted in there, then they, the experts are looking at that. So if there's something just blatantly false, they're going to catch you on it. The other nice thing is that uh, um, Paul Begg is an expert of experts. And what he does is he's the one that does the book reviews. So any kind of books that are out and mine were out, he, he reviewed my books. And so the nice thing is, and uh, the authors kind of joke that he kind of slams everybody's books. But what he did was he said that uh, he told me that, uh, or in the, his review on mine was that mine was the book, the best book in 2016. And for that, for that matter, 2015, my first one. And then the second one, he gave an, an, an excellent review, but it was all because it's research-based. And so, and that's kind of my background is research and how to properly cite resources and uh, make sure that the evidence follows to a conclusion, not just my arguing kind of thing. And so that he, he really appreciated that. So that's where me, why I wanted to make sure that I, it was not, let's say a, a pseudoscience. I purposely went through the experts and so i wanted them to rip me apart literally because some of these experts which we all know brian knows as well they really know their stuff while others have an agenda for example one particular person wants to have his great grandfather hh holmes as jack uh, the jack the ripper so that right there there are there are things that he's not telling people and interestingly the the when I was on the history's greatest mysteries, that director actually wanted to promote H.H. Holmes because he was friends with that particular person. And I insisted that I give the counter evidence to H.H. Holmes and he filmed me, but he never showed it. <laughs> on Amazing how that happens on post-production. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, but speaking of H.H. Holmes and he was from the Philadelphia area, died here, but had some crimes in Chicago and all that right. stuff, but they said there were similar handwriting of his compared to the Dear Boss letter, which is right. where you got the Jack the Ripper nickname. But he was was he actually a licensed doctor? Because obviously the guy you focus on, Francis Tumberlinty, he he was a how do I put this? From what I understand, a quack uh, scam artist some would yes. say of the time right herbs all that fun stuff so was hh H. holmes actually a doctor or? 
Yes. Now, Adam Selzer is actually the foremost expert, and he uh, he says that there is absolutely no evidence that he crossed that uh, H.H. Uh, Holmes, which his real name was Mudgett, but uh, crossed the Atlantic. <laughs> so, but yeah, so, uh, but he was, he was considered a medical doctor. Now, the problem was, is uh, Jeff Mudgett, what he did was, is he wanted to connect it with the Dear Boss letter. Now, most experts agree that the Dear Boss letter was not really, even though that gave the, the name Jack the Ripper, was not from Jack the Ripper. And one of the biggest reasons they know that is because the, whoever did sent that letter, sent it to the Central News Agency. So nobody in public knows what the central news agency really is. It's an associate, it's, it's the associated press in London. So it's not even a newspaper, but the newspapers get the articles from the central news agency. So that guaranteed that all these newspapers would get that. So only the uh, journalists knew about that. And that's where Scotland Yard was convinced that was a couple of people that there were journalists, journalists from the Central News Agency. And there were some Americanisms in that letter, meaning it looked like the, the person that wrote it uh, was from America. Even the, the name Dear Boss is an example of that, I mean, the, the term. And so what happened is that Central News Agency had a couple journalists that uh, were American. <laughs> so so that was why Scotland Yard did not would rejected it. But for some and that's why even though the history's greatest mysteries was promoting it and had me talk about it, they didn't want me to finish discussing the the Dear Boss letter because most experts would agree that it's not the now the From Hell letter. There are more people that would suggest that that would be from Jack the Ripper. Now before we jump into Francis, obviously. And he actually did cross the Atlantic a few times, as oh, you yeah. cited there. But there's been other suspects and theories. You had George Chapman, you had Kaminsky, who was locked up in the asylum in yeah, yes. Yep. You had Pfizer, who was the boot finisher and things. You know, there's different, there's a lot of theories and people. Then there's also the you know, theory of female killer, midwives, things Jill like that. Jill the Ripper, that. yeah. Yes. So sailors that come in and out of London at the time. So what was it about Francis that you said, okay, I'm leaning in this direction based on information you saw? Well, I, the reason why I first started around 2009 was uh, my first book was, it was, uh, was being looked at by a publisher. So I was biting at the bit to see what would happen with that particular one. That's a completely different subject. And so, and I, again, love research. And I watched a show called Mystery Quest. And there was this person, this retired British police officer named Stuart Evans that he had, dis, uh, he happened upon this letter from uh, Chief Inspector John Littlechild, who was the Chief Inspector of Britain's the uh, Scotland Yard Special Branch, kind of the CIA version. And a journalist had asked him a question, uh, George Sims, on who he, th who he thought Jack the Ripper was. This was so it was 15 years later, so they're all retired. So he sent a letter back privately saying, I don't know about the guy you're talking about, this Dr. D, but Tom Francis Tumbley, he's the likely suspect. And that shocked Stuart Evans because Stuart Evans had been researching this for 30 years and never heard of uh, uh, Francis Tumbley. I have since found out that Scotland Yard buried that story. And, if, and, and I can talk a little bit about how they buried it and why they did it. But so, so then no one knew about this Francis Tumbley. 
the British papers were not even writing stories about him. What was the U.S. papers that were? And so, and, and so that's what Stuart Evans started researching and found out uh, uh, a lot of things about him that here it is, the chief inspector who was always in the meetings during the Whitechapel murders remembered the big discussions about Francis Tubley and how Scotland Yard took him seriously as a suspect. And of course, what happened was, and John Littlechild said, was what clearly happened when Tumbley was arrested on suspicion, but nobody saw the murders, so nobody could be arrested for the murders. So they charged him, they nailed him on a misdemeanor charge of gross indecency, and that would have put him in at least for two years. Well, he was a millionaire, so he posted bail, sneaked out of the country, country. the murder stopped. And then so and then uh, and so there's a lot story. So what originally happened was is that the even when Stuart Evans had written his book in 1995, he was about 1993 that he discovered this letter. 1995, his book came out, and the other experts looked at that and they thought, "Oh, I don't think the little child letter or John Littlechild, Chief Inspector Littlechild, really meant that Tumbley was a really serious suspect." And they kind of looked at the the sentences and kind of it said. Because we don't have any other evidence of Tumblety, he was likely a small suspect, therefore nothing. So they pinned the suspect status on Tumblety with the little child letter. Since the little child letter, they kind of uh, rationalized as nothing, then Tumblety was nothing. Well, I found a, a lot more stuff. I found out that the source was Scouting Yard themselves, and it was actually, luckily, this New York World London correspondent, E. Tracy Greaves, had a had a scouting yard informant that said, "Hey, this Cumbledy, they got the name wrong. Whoever informant was, instead of a T, they said a K. But it was a Dr. Cumbledy from New York was arrested on suspicion, and so that's how the story broke. And scouting yard did not want that story to be broke, but it did, and then it continued on. And so, I mean, a lot of interesting things happened since. So what happened is that because of the research after." What I was going to do is I was because I found out, thanks to Stuart Evans, that Tumbley was actually buried only an hour away from where I live. I went to his gravesite, and so I, I YouTube something about that. So I thought, you know what, this is a fun thing to research, and I want to try to, you know, try it myself because I'm a different kind of researcher. I'm not. A, there are attorneys that are ripperologists. There are physicians. There's psychologists, psychiatrists. There's uh, police officers. Well, I'm a physical science guy. Uh, so uh, geophysics, geology, and paleontology, we research slightly differently. So I wanted to try this approach. And so I started discovering, realizing that Stuart Evans nailed it. So, and uh, so that's what got a lot of attention. So, I mean, for example, Scout and Yard never knew this, but a few years before the murders, here's Jack the Ripper. When he murdered these women, he, he stole... He took from two women the uterus, and we found out that Tumbley had a uterus collection. How many people do you know that had a uterus collection? You and mean then, I got one in a closet? What are you talking about? Yeah, there you go. See, and that then, thing that's hanging there. <laughs> that's right. And then, uh, you know, from Catherine Eddowes, he took the kidney, and then uh, the heart from uh, Mary Kelly. Well, here's Fr uh, Francis Tumbley at the, during the, the year of the murders, January in Toronto. He was telling a Toronto reporter that he was. Uh, in constant dread of sudden death because of kidney and heart disease. And here's Tumbley have a uterus collection. So he's connected to all three of those organs that Jack Ripper took. And then a few years before the murders in New Orleans, 
he tells this young man that he, he loved young men. So he told this young man, he pulled the cigarette out of his mouth. And he said, there's two things wrong with young men these days, cigarettes and streetwalkers. They should all be disemboweled. So, and then the young man said he carried around in his travel chest, surgical knives in the 1880s. So how many other Jack the Ripper suspects carried around surgical knives? And that's what we know that Jack the Ripper used was one of those long amputation knives. So here's Tumblety carrying that in his travel chest in the 1880s. So I just, you know, everything I find there just keeps it, it's damning every time. Nobody knew about what happened. It was sworn testimony in 1905 court, court that that young man from New Orleans talked about this. So, but it was buried. It wasn't in any newspapers. It was buried in a, a St. Louis, uh, in archives. So, uh, and it just, and it, and it keeps on getting worse or not for his case. But yeah, with the St. Louis thing, because that's where Francis had passed away because he later in his life bounced around, you know, spent time in Baltimore and obviously upstate New York and St. Louis and different things been overseas. But there was a several court cases, correct? Uh, fighting his will. Correct. So it was a few things happened. One is in 1903, May 1903, he checked him into a St. John's Catholic hospital in St. Louis to die. So he felt that he was about to die. And he did. He died about 20 days later. So and the 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 doctor that would see see him each night made a comment that he had a passion for surgery, especially amputations. And then Tumblety uh, was and he said that the Tumblety had an uh, absolutely had an anatomical knowledge and surgical knowledge, but he. So what he did was is the uh, he was a he was actually a devout Catholic, uh, and he believed back then. Uh, even though this is not doctrine, he believed that it was not Adam that committed the original sin; it was Eve deceiving Adam. Therefore, women are the curse to the land including disease so because the original sin brought disease into the into the land women did it and when tumbley contracted syphilis about eight years before the ripper murders he blamed women for that and then so and there's always been contemporary theories that jack the ripper was kind of getting these women back because of syphilis well tumbley would fit that category so but eventually he 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 uh, we've realized that he had neurosyphilis because not only would he go to St. Louis, he would go to hot springs once or twice a year. And that was the Mecca for syphilis patients. And his hot springs doctor was asked during those court cases, uh, what do you think was wrong with Francis Tumblety in the end of his life? He says, he said he had softening of the brain and softening of the brain back then was called, it was called paresis or paralysis of the insane. Today, we call that neurosyphilis, which is a third stage, tertiary stage syphilis. And that affects your kidney, your heart, and your brain. So, but so Tumblety had that. And so that's why here it is, just a few years after the Rip murders, uh, he always went to the slums, hang out in the slums each evening. He just loved that. And but then he would dress as a homeless person for the rest of his life at, after the mid 1890s. He had th still he had um, three point four million dollars of today's value in the New York Bank. He would still do that. So then but he would be going to St. Louis and that's where he was uh, that again that he wanted to die. What was your question again? Because I, I keep on talking. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, it's fine. Oh, I know what I was going to say. Yeah, also, okay, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, so what happened is that was 1903. Yes. What they realized is that in 1901, he actually wrote a, not a last will and testament, but a first will and testament in Baltimore. And in that will and testament that they had to bring up because, uh, well, they, they brought that up. And in there, he was bequeathing money to the home for the fallen women in Baltimore, which were prostitutes. And so some, some people thought, well, well, maybe he uh, felt guilty about what happened because they were prostitutes and that, you know, if he was Jack the Ripper, absolutely not. This guy was a narcissist. He had six autobiographies. And so narcissistic personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder, which all almost all serial killers have today. The reason why he was doing that is basically to grease the skids to get to heaven. <laughs> That's what he was doing. He spent, he, 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 even then, and also the 1903 will, he gave much of his money to the Catholic Church. And again, greasing the skids to get to heaven. But and that's uh, kind of what started with the lawsuits and when he passed and all that. Yeah, but stuff. what happened is he tried to screw everybody and he was going to screw a bunch of his family members. All of his, he was the 11th child. So all his uh, brothers and sisters had passed. So they had a lot of nephews and nieces. So he was giving. He gave $10,000, which was $150,000 of today's value, to a niece. And the two brothers, he gave nothing. So what happened was is he did not – he died before the uh, – he could give – you know, his will was complete. But what? Uh, but that will was still registered. And so the, the family members that did not get anything sued – to get their their money you know his money so again it was 3.4 million dollars so ultimately after after five years of battle there was a uh, compromise so the people that he bequeathed money to he got but there were still two-thirds of his money left over and that was spread out equally amongst everyone uh, of his family members and obviously you are a factual guy because of the science background and things like that. And there was a presentation on YouTube I was watching earlier, and it was one of yours. Hmm. And the clip what was you were talking about a forensic scientist in Dr. Turvey. Okay. Who was you were talking about the offender motive of hatred of women like Francis and all that fun stuff. Yes. Do, do you think, because it's discussed when it, when we talk, Francis is about liking sex with young men, possibly being homosexual and whatnot. Uh, and some, most would say with homosexual serial killers, they tend to victimize the same sex. Right. Like John and Casey. Yes. Uh, however, Francis's sexual desires tended to be for the young men. Right. So obviously, and the other thing there is possible hermaphrodite. There's statements, sworn statements by like the undertaker and things like that. Yeah. When he passed. So there's a lot to intake there. Because some speculate when Francis passed, that might have been part of the reason of his death and murder, but it was his heart and everything you mentioned earlier. Right. So I know where can we go with that? Because there's just so much there with the anger to women and the 
his sexuality right. and all that fun stuff. Well, what happens is too many people do uh, a cookie cutter technique on when they look at serial killers. They think serial killers always have to continue to kill. So if you go on the F FBI website, that is a misconception. They sometimes do, especially those that are that are the motive is sadosexuality, sadistic sexuality, like John Wayne Gacy. He loved to cause these young men to, uh, he, he liked to play God. So they'd pass out, revive them, pass out, revive them, but he would abuse them while they're alive. And then so, so that's that sadistic sexuality. There's an impulse there. So you can't get rid of the impulse. So there's a the desire to continue to kill. Well, there are other motives, uh, as they, the experts have realized. One is, is what you said, uh, Dr. Brent Turvey talks about when he looks at the Jack the Ripper victims, there was no sadistic behavior because these women were mutilated post-mortem. There was no sadistic anything. So what happened was, is there was a quick agenda to, I mean, he, uh, Jack the Ripper had just minutes and silence. No one heard every single time it was so silent. And what he would do is would choke them first. And you could tell by two of them, Annie Chapman and uh, Polly Nichols, that they were choked first. And then he would cut their throat right to the spine, stop the heart. So when you were eviscerating blood splatters, no, there wouldn't be any blood splatter because the heart would be stopped. And then so, and he would do it just it fast. So there was, there was an agenda there. And so, but also though, Catherine Eddowes, her, his, her face was attacked and also Polly Nichols, her vagina was stabbed, but he focused on the abdomen. And then, then Mary Kelly indoors was just mutilated. Uh, the face was mutilated, but what Brent Turvey saw was not sadistic sexual behavior, but bitter hatred, anger, retaliatory, retaliation against these women for something. You know, one example would be your, uh, uh, that this would not be the case, but let's say your, your mother was a prostitute and now you're going to kill prostitutes because of that, you know, it ruined your life or whatever. But in this case, but this would be anger, retaliatory. So when that fits Tumbley to a T because Tumbley had this bitter hatred of not all women, but just widow or maid, young uh, women that could, would lure young men away and to their intended lovers, him. So, and yes, he was uh, like the, the young man in, in, in New Orleans called him a morphodite under oath. And so the, the, the attorney said, you mean hermaphrodite? Yes, a morphodite. And so he said he had no penis and his uh, Baltimore attorney heard rumor by the police officers in Baltimore that he was a hermaphrodite. And so then Tumbley had passed out in his office and apparently his pants fell down and he saw that. And so he asked Tumbley directly what about this? And he says, well, that's don't tell anyone because that has uh, plagued me all my life since birth. And then the, 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 in, at the, uh, the, uh, at the mortuary, the, the, the guy that, cleaned up his body said that he had a penis the size of the tip of his thumb so the penis is actually considered in females is actually the same organ as the clitoris and so you have a, a number of things one would be a, an actual interest it's called intersex condition they don't use the word uh, hermaphrodite anymore but in both male and female parts but it's on a uh, spectrum some have more female parts, some have more male parts. And the Baltimore attorney remembers Tumbley, even he was tall, wide shoulders, had mustache, 
but he had an effeminate voice, small hands, and he had hips like a woman, he said. And then so, but uh, some people would maybe, there is a, an intersect condition called micropenis that, uh, that uh, Brian Young's brother really uh, talks about. So, and Brian would think about, you know, possibly it was a micropenis, but, uh, but regardless, he had no ability to rape. And then so none of these uh, Jack River victims were raped, even though that they were prostitutes. But yeah, so then uh, he blamed women for that. And, you know, you during the murders, when you're describing victims and such, it's pretty amazing when you think about it, that they knew this, that in terms of whether a victim was, say, tortured or whatever, prior or before or after death because obviously when we talk about it now obviously people think of like say law and order svu and thing and obviously that's dramatization of things but i bring that up because now today and you would notice uh, have a science with a science background we have dna and they have different things we can say where we can physically prove all right this happened while they were alive, this happened after they died, you know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Like you mentioned about the vagina being affected or penetrated. This, you know, just all the different things you hear with these types of cases. Right. So how would you have known back then in the 1880, late 1880s that certain things happened? You know what I'm saying? Does that make yeah, sense? Right. Yeah. Two things that come come to mind. One is bruising. If there's bruising, then the victim was alive. And then so if there's no bruising, then the victim was dead. And then the other was the tongue was sticking out. So the tongue sticking out is as as someone's being choked. And that's the last moments is your tongue will stick out. So that that showed evidence. Even today, they talk about that, uh, what they look at when they look at victimology, if the tongue is sticking out and then some uh, bloodshot eyes and a few other things, they can tell that there was a choking prior to death. And then uh, so those two things uh, come uh, come to mind immediately. And I know that back then they talked about it, because when you looked at the at the coroner's inquests, that when the surgeons were asked questions, that's what they would talk about. They would talk about lack of bruising or and then they would talk about. nothing attack in the vagina although there was a stabbing to that but there was not uh, um, a brutal attack inside the vagina except i mean if that's that would be the canonical five and uh, or even the one martha tabram which was the previous one the one six months before that's when the the people attacked her you know jammed something into her vagina which caused her death and we were talking about the, or you brought this up about the uh, surgical scalpels and the stuff like that. Yeah. And I always found it fascinating that Francis, like I said, he shyster in certain ways, you yes. know, for, for his time period. But what, when people talk about the uteruses and all that fun stuff, having the body parts or the kidneys or whatever it is, whether somebody is in for actual surgery, even now, or they do it post-mortem, you need strength, a little bit of strength there to, you know, cut your stomach right. and right. all that stuff. So, and obviously, I mentioned earlier about possible Jill the Ripper, but, mm-hmm. you know, 
and I know the history show that I mentioned earlier, they talked about it being a bigger woman for that. Yeah. And all. But there had to be some strength in order to uh, manipulate and cut the body open and all that fun stuff. Within so, minutes, within minutes. Yeah. Yes. So, she, you know, it's fascinating when you think about that kind of thing. And also, if you look at one of the things I see a lot of people not doing, what I've been doing lately quite a bit, is looking through at all the modern day serial killers. And when you look at women, their mode of killing is usually poisoning. And with the exception of uh, uh, Warnos, Eileen Warnos, she shot him. But none of them really used the knife and then throttled them first. And then uh, even on woman on woman, it's usually poisoning. So that's one of the things that they even um, um, actually I'm talking about uh, there is one uh, what um, Percy, uh, Mary Percy. Mm -hmm. She actually had a reason. There was an agenda that she killed that woman and disemboweled. I mean, dismembered the woman, but it was because of the they were, there was a fight over, you know, they they wanted the same man. So there was a reason there was an agenda. These, these Jack the Ripper victims, that was just, that wasn't, there was no motive. And that was one of the problems that Scout and Yard had is they usually, if you can find a motive, then you can start focusing on someone, but they couldn't find a motive. Well, again, now today we know that when it's a, a let's say a, a serial killer, the motive is the killing. And so that's eventually the psychologists and psych uh, the, uh, they knew they called it a monomaniac, and that would be the kind of the same idea of what a serial killer is. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but Mary Percy, you mentioned there, she was supposedly a midwife or had medical training, but there's been no proof of that. So, right, right. exactly. Yeah, that's where they get the midwife or the midwife uh, theory. Yes. Am I on that same boat there? Right. And so that she would have when you look, uh, even the, most of the surgeons that looked at the Whitechapel victims, most of them said that there was definitely anatomical knowledge, not necessarily anatomical skill, but knowledge. Now, there was one Thomas Bond that said he, he didn't see that, but there was a reason why he nobody says about the reason why he said that Jack the Ripper did not have any anatomical knowledge or skill is because he believed the motive was just mutilate so collecting the organs would not be a case of that so then he would say it doesn't matter who you are anybody can do that so that's why he thought it because he actually looked at the motive is is just uh is to like a blood motive uh, is bloodlust to attack therefore there's no reason but the other ones they saw the process for example annie chapman her organs, her intestines were moved to her left, her left shoulder, and then to go in and get something. So you could see that the, the offender was moving organs to collect something. So if you're just going to grab anything, you wouldn't be moving and put them on the shoulder and, and like this. So especially Mary Kelly's case, you could see that out as well. And I mentioned the DNA and just the scientific advancements that we have now. So, and I would consider this case a lot like JFK, where there are a lot of theories, a lot of just so much stuff there that I don't think we'll fully know an answer 
of who did it and why and answer the logistical questions. That's right. But I got to ask anyway, do you think we will ever know who Jack the Ripper really was? Uh, I would, I would not, I would say we won't as in a hundred percent because for example, even though there have been cases where people try to use DNA evidence to try to pin it on someone, you think about it, there's really, you could get, you could exhume the bodies of these women or even some of the suspects, you'd get DNA, but environmental DNA would have been decomposed. You would never get environmental DNA. So the DNA process would work. But of course, the one with the DNA on the shawl where they, they said that this was uh, Catherine Eddowes shawl that there was a scout and yard patrol constable uh, that took that shawl from the, the victim before and then put it in his pocket. And so on that shawl had the blood of Catherine Eddowes and then had the semen of Kazminsky, who was one of the suspects. And so so apparently the modern day people looked at the descendants of Kazminsky and Catherine Eddowes and matched it up. Therefore, Kazminsky is a killer. There is, it's just so much wrong with that. For example, one thing what's quickly wrong is, is that the Scotland Yard had no business being at the crime scene of Catherine Eddowes because Catherine Eddowes was murdered in the city of London. So a Catherine, uh, a Scotland Yard police officer would have no right to being there. And we know that what happened with Catherine Eddowes, as in the the, the PCs that were walking their beats, it was within minutes and then that, uh, that everybody was there. There would have been nobody else there. And so that, that, that uh, police officer was on the job, but a mile away. So it was, you could see it was in the family. He probably lied to these things because he was, he was in scouting yard at the time. So he, he had a good story for all of his grandkids, but it, it would, does not match, you know, so, but like, and again, so we really would not have that. Now, what's happening is, is I'm finding, we're finding more stuff that's damning, but it's always going to be, you're not going to have a photograph of them or, or anything like this. You're just going to have something that is definitely, you cannot eliminate this person as a suspect. So, but we can't eliminate Kazminsky as a suspect because Scout and Yard police officers named him. Scout and Yard police officers named, uh, you know, like, Francis Tumbley, he's another one, but then they named a few others. And then there are some other suspects that modern research have researchers have brought up that were there. So they, you know, they could very well uh, be so, but so what's, what's, I think it's the exciting thing is to do the research, get, and we, there's just still so much more to to discover. And a lot of people were saying there isn't that much more to discover. Well, that's not true. I mean, the, the book that I'm coming out with has 90,000 pages and I have a volume of stuff that, uh, that is going to be kind of a shocker. <laughs> so it's, it's a fun thing. Francis Tumblety. Uh, I heard, well, a couple of things I heard. I found it interesting to connect it to other historical folks and time periods and stuff. Mm-hmm. But he apparently gave some medical speeches to military folks in the D.C. area, correct? Yeah. Also, with that being said, I heard he had a connection to John Wilkes Booth in 1863. Is that yes. true as well? Or Yes. 
So a few things about him that uh, that he wrote in his autobiographies. One of six, in, by the way. What's that? One of, One of six. six that's right. So he would put truths, half truths, and lies in there, and all to make it look good. And so there are a lot of a lot of things that he would fake. He clearly did when uh, the the Battle of Bull Run started, when uh, the Civil War began. He went to Washington D.C. from New York. And he was going to try to convince uh, General McClellan who, Mc, McClellan, who was in charge of the Army of the Potomac at the time right there, that he should be commissioned uh, part of a surgical unit. So what he did, what surgeon did, surgeons did this at the time is give uh, illustrated medical lectures to show not only their, their experience, but they show illustrated, meaning the the organs that they collected themselves, they would show and talk about this. So uh, there was, uh, during that, uh, just after the Battle of Bull Run, Tumbledee actually invited all the officers, the eyes and ears of the general, and the medical doctors, uh, the, uh, an evening, and it was a uh, illustrated medical lecture, and he, and he had a library of organs, and including his favorite, which this uh, Colonel, um, Colonel Charles Denham, was the one that uh, in 1888 was talking about him at the time during the civil war back in 1861 was invited there and watched Tumbledee talk about this. So recently or in the past, they, they realized that Charles Dunham was actually a spy. And so he was a professional liar. And so that was in 1861. He was a double agent sometimes. And so he was brilliant at it. But he was a New York City lawyer, attorney. And once the Civil War was done, then he went back to being a, a, an attorney, a real estate attorney. And he was never in the papers. But then in 1888, he came back in the papers. Well, what I found, so people were saying all he's doing was he hates Tumbley. So he's, he's lying to get Tumbley back. Well, what I found out was not only was they said that Charles Dunham wasn't even in the, that location in 1861 and Tumbley was not. Well, I found an article that showed Tumbley was, was there. So both Dunham and Tumbley were at, there at the same time. And what happened was, is 1861 was just prior to that, in 1860, he is in, uh, he has gone through Canada in St. John's and he was arrested. Actually, there was a coroner's inquest because one of his patients died. And so the coroner's inquest, well, basically the recommended charge uh, Tumbledee with manslaughter, but then Tumbledee sneaked out of the country. But the evening he sneaked out of the country, what he did was he went in to, uh, to find out if Tumbledee's herbs that he gave this man was poison, they had to do an autopsy. So Tumbledee sneaked into that examination room and tried to steal the organs. This was about uh, six months before uh, the uh, Civil War started. So all through Canada, he was all in intrigued about organs. And the reason for that is because he claimed he had a, he was an MD, he had a medical diploma. And, it, and so even though it was herbal medicine that he was expertise at, all, there was a med school in Philadelphia that allowed that where you can say your your medicine was that, but you to get a medical diploma, you still had to be an expert in surgery. And so then when he went through Canada to try to, you know, do his quack doctor business and within three years, he became a millionaire in Toronto. Those attorneys, those uh, not attorneys, but those surgeons, 
they had him arrested because in Canada, you it just uh, just because you have a medical diploma, you, you're not supposed to be a doctor. You got to get permission from the 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 medical uh, board there. And Tumbley never did that. So Tumbley would always try to say, well, I was just acting as a pharmacist. But what happened was, is they found out that the stu- uh, some of the people that were coming to his office, he was not just saying, okay, you can, uh, yeah, this medicine would work for you. He was actually uh, prescribing medicine, diagnosing, doing what doctors do. So then he, he, he lost that case and he was almost going to go in prison for six months, but he paid his way out. But what happened was, is he realized that he had to go in front of an oral board. So, and do that, you have to be an expert in surgery. So by the time he got to Montreal, he called his place an academy and he had surgeons at his own academy. So he was learning the business. And so organs are one of the things that surgeons had to do, what would do. So, but in Buffalo, there is an article that says they thought it was 1863, but it was really 1861 that he, he was, uh, there was a, a person, a reporter said that Tumbley was giving medical lectures with thespian emphasis. That was in Buffalo. Well, John Wilkes Booth, he met up with John Wilkes Booth in Buffalo in 1863. And, and so, but nobody knew this until now, recently. What happened was, is 1864 was he had a young man working for him in Brooklyn. And it looked like uh, it was John Wilkes Booth's uh, 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 you know, David Harold, the, the man that was the accomplice with John Wilkes Booth, there was a young man in Washington, D.C. that said that he remembered David Harold working for Tumblety in Brooklyn just a year before, and that uh, and it was that young man was actually working for John Wilkes Booth. So they thought that Tumblety was in connection with John Wilkes Booth. And uh, but no. And I would say no anyway, because Tumblety could that was John Wilkes Booth. There was a cause. He, you know, he, he murdered Clinton for a cause, regardless if it was right or wrong, it was a cause. And so Tumbley could care less about causes. He only cared about himself. So he would never have cared anything about it. He just loved, he just loved, uh, he loved the theater. He loved, uh, you know, especially the young men. And John Wilkes Booth was a handsome man. I could see Tumbley just being attracted to John Wilkes Booth, but. Of course, Booth would not have been attracted to Tumbley, but would love to have Tumbley's money. But uh, so even if Booth tried to talk Tumbley into him, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have worked to help him. So Tumbley actually uh, writes about this quite a bit in his autobiography because he he was he did not he was not involved. He actually actually was uh, prescribed medicine for John Wilkes, I mean, uh, uh, Lincoln's wife. So he was actually friends with the Lincolns. And how we know that was because when. Lincoln was uh, president-elect. Lincoln was had a parade in New York City. Tumblety was right next to his carriage, and then uh, the Lincoln's carriage going through. And people are wondering why was Tumblety allowed, you know, to be right next to him? Well, the reason is because through the wife. So there. So Tumblety actually did not hate Northerners. He hated radical Republicans, but he didn't hate Republicans, which was. See, uh, Nick, uh, and Lincoln was a Republican, not a radical Republican. Mm-hmm. But, and it's funny, and I know I we can go off on a tangent there, which but, I did. <laughs> well, no, no, it's all good. That's how we learned. Like I said last week, when we we're talking to martial arts and stuff. But yeah. I just find it funny that when I reference, I just was explaining to somebody the other day when I was out with them that Lincoln wasn't a 
the same thing you just said there, a radical Republican. Yeah. But he was truly the, I would say, from a historical standpoint, that he, how do I put this? He was like the found one of the founding forefathers for the Republican Party, yeah. where that people reference Lincoln. Then you fast forward 120 years, 130 years, whatever it may have been. My math's a little off at this point. You go Ronald Reagan, where people in modern time reference Link or Reagan. Yes. Yeah. Reaganomics, all that stuff, things that he did in the 80s. So, yeah, he's one of those pillars when it comes to the Republican Party. So, yeah. Right. Well, <laughs> not, we're not going to get into politics, but, you know, it's yeah. like I said, it's a whole weekend, you know. Right. Right. <laughs> So you have multiple books out and everything else like that. So what do you think, or what should people take away from the different stories you've told, whether it be about Tumble Tea or even a non-fic or the fiction stuff and just everything you've written? What do you, but with this case in particular, what do you think people should take away? From I think that? what, uh, about before I got into it, the uh, many of the experts who knew about Tumbledy for at least 10 years or so minimalized him. And by the time uh, I discovered these, this much, there was just a wealth of other things I discovered. Uh, we found out that Tumbledy was actually taken seriously by Scotland Yard. As a matter of fact, when Tumbledy sneaked out of London, Scotland Yard followed him. And and so uh, there was an investigation in the United States. And that's uh, the subject of my next book. But I have uh, irrefutable evidence to show that Scotland Yard was on, you know, was hunting him down, but not just hunting him. They couldn't arrest him for anything, but uh, they were looking for something and it was all on Tumbledy, but they couldn't find it. And then, but uh, so my point with Francis Tumbledy is Scotland Yard took him seriously. And that when you look at modern day serial killers, their motives, it matches him. He had, he had a complete lack of remorse. And I show a number of cases, especially with my last book, uh, Doc, uh, Jack the Ripper Suspect, Dr. Francis Tumbley. I go into detail. So my first nonfiction book called The Ripper's Haunts, I show that Tumbley did indeed have a bitter hatred of women and of, of widow or maid and that Scott Yard took him seriously. And then the second one shows his personality matches the that uh, as what we look at modern day serial killers today and so and some of the evidence that i was talking about uh, that we found in the st louis uh, records then uh, so this next one goes into even further detail that actually corroborates more of that and so it's i think when people are looking at their favorite suspect, basically, and just what we talked about, that some of the suspects I see have one or two things pointing against them, like Jill the, the Ripper or anything, and then people get so convinced. Well, it's amazing how the wealth of the wealth of uh, damning evidence against Tumblety it just keeps on getting worse. And some of the reasons why people rejected Tumblety. Uh, are actually that's actually where the misinformation is for example that they thought that he was just a you know it's just a charismatic guy that 
was always in the limelight and he stopped once he stopped his business he was never in the limelight or that he was too tall a lot of the witnesses you know like uh if when they're suspects uh the when they look at the let's say the uh, any eyewitnesses of the murders nobody saw the murders so none of the eyewitnesses that they talk about didn't see the actual murder they just saw somebody that was with a you know a prostitute that was with john and that it could have been him or her that was you know the victim and so none of them matched tumbledy but that's not true either i found more cases where because tumbledy was six foot tall and so um and so there's a case where right after mary kelly was murdered that running through miter square was this tall man well dressed with blood on his cuffs that he uh that nobody talks about so they talk about uh, some of the eyewitness testimony of just prior to the murders, but nothing after. And so that would happen. And there's a couple other ones that I talk about. So it just, so it just kind of keeps on going. So, and the fun part is there's more coming. And last question, it just hit me because you kind of hinted at it a few times, but I wasn't, you know, thinking of it until just now, but Obviously, you said you got more information to come out and stuff with the new book and such. But how it's not like today where things are, I say this tongue in cheek, in the cloud and different things like that. But how was the record keeping of things, whether it be crimes like this and just different things compared back then compared to now? It was atrocious, basically, because they didn't expect to, to use those. One is, sadly, the city of London's records were bombed during World War II, so we don't have those. And many of these files are, are gone. A little, uh, you know, Chief Inspector Littlechild talks about Tumblety's file being massive, massive dossier. Well, people wonder, well, where is it? If it's true that there was, well, think about the other top suspects that Scout and Yard talked about, Kosminski, one of them, uh, Druid is another. They can't find their file either. So I always say, well, Tumblety's file was next to Kosminski's and Druitt's, meaning where are those files? But actually what happens is, and also when there are some records of some of the, uh, the suspects that they were looking at, but those records are only the, the minimal suspects. You don't find Kosminski, Druitt, or, or Tumblety. Uh, they would try to eliminate Tumblety because he was not on a smaller list. But they, the other, none of the bigger suspects were on that list. Those suspects were kind of, they were uh, kind of, you could see that they were, uh, you, the, their, their records were, were kind of uh, handled differently. So, and then it's, it's true. And then even, so some of these records are, are just not around. Well, what's nice is that because they're digitizing all these old newspaper archives, I, we can, I can find some things that, that you can see as long as it's corroborated by other evidence. If you know, somebody just says something in the newspaper article, it could be just fake news kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. The next thing you know, I find out, for example, when Tumblety left, uh, got to, sneaked out of the country and came back to New York city, December 2nd. And then December 3rd, these two New York uh, uh, detectives saw a, you know, or I mean, reporters, two different uh, newspapers saw the scout and yard detective outside his window. They reported it December 4th, December 5th, Tumbley vanished from New York city. Nobody knew where he went. Well, I know where he went. 
he went to Waterloo, Waterloo, New York. How I know that is because two things. One is the Waterloo newspaper, they archived their newspapers and they said, hey, Tumbley's in town. Why I know that is correct is because his sister lived there. His sister lived in Waterloo, and I knew that. And a few years before the Ripper murders, when Tumbley was in, in Toronto, when he got uh, arrested for sodomy in, in Toronto, sneaked out of the country. And where did he go? To Waterloo, New York, New York, because under oath, Thomas Powderly, which who lived in Waterloo, who was the nephew of Tumbley, said, yeah, Tumbley would come to our house <laughs> and hide. So it was that was corroborating that newspaper article. And uh, and incidentally, there was a woman that was accosted at night, uh, attacked by the throat, just like uh, Annie Chapman and uh, and uh, Polly Nichols. But she got away. So and that was at the same spot. And the, the reporter suspected it was Tumblety. So but that's that's t- that's the next book. <laughs> right on. Well, where can people see your books and all that fun stuff? I know you have a site. What is yeah, that? that? That's my big hub. It's uh, www.michaellhawley.com. L for middle initial. And uh, so that right there, I put all my, uh, you know, the podcast or the lectures. Some of them I have on uh, video. Some of the things I talked about with the DNA evidence where I gave a few lectures, I have that. You can watch those on video. And then, um, and so many of the um, books that I have there, I, uh, you know, you can get a hold of one of them. One of my fiction novels actually is, has a book on audio. So it's called Jack's Lantern. Although it's not about Jack the Ripper, it's about the Jack-o'-lantern. So it's a history of serial killers. I love serial killing. Not, not serial killers research on them and try to uh, discover who, who they are. But I'll have to connect you with uh, somebody now that you say that because I didn't know that. Well, obviously I knew about the fascination with the serial killers, but there's a gentleman who works with us that has a serial killer game out. Oh, so, okay. And he uses real life criminals and the crimes and all that stuff for the game. So I'll have to connect you with Jeff. Okay. <laughs> but Michael, thank you so much for the time. Oh, thank you very much. It was fun. Hey there, Friday fans. We know how much you enjoy the movies. Enjoy grabbing your Friday merchandise and interacting with the Friday family, whether it be at conventions or during our particular watch-alongs. Well, when you're looking to get yourself masks, why not check out our friends over at Camp Blood Customs out of New York State and order your specific custom mask from any of the films. All orders are made specifically. Your needs and wants are. Make sure you find Camp Blood Customs on Facebook, Instagram, and all over social media and order yours today.
Hey, boils and ghouls, David Howard Thornton, Art the Clown himself, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio. Choo-choo! Yeah!